You're listening to Trademarks Made Easy. Trademarks Made Easy is the podcast focused on helping brand owners in the e-commerce space. With your host, Susie Hickson, the private label lawyer. But don't worry, you won't find too much legalese here. Well, hey there, and welcome back to the Trademarks Made Easy for Private Label Sellers podcast. I'm your host, Susie Hickson, also known as the Private Label Lawyer. I'm the founder of the Private Label Law Boutique, and we help our clients create long-term wealth with their private label products by guiding them through the complexities of the legal landscape so they can grow their private label businesses securely and confidently on a daily basis. So this week, we are revisiting our interview with Rachel Santarlis, and we're going to talk more about copyright protection. One thing I love about this episode and last week's episode is that Rachel and I have very different accents. So it's a lot of fun to kind of get us together and get us bantering about copyright law. But I obviously have a bit of a Southern accent and Rachel has very much of a New Jersey accent. So it's a lot of fun. So again, Rachel Centarlis. And again, make sure that you listen to part one if you haven't. I think it's really important to listen to it first. But Rachel Santarlis is the founder and managing partner of Santarlis Law. And she's very big on making sure that her clients really stick to what they do best. And that's running their businesses and developing their own products and services that will really just rock in the marketplace. She understands that, you know, we're all really on a budget and she will help her clients save time and money and headache because she really doesn't want people doing things out of their comfort zone. I get it. So the great thing about Rachel also is that she's a seasoned IP attorney. She's been there and she really gives some great feedback and great tips in both of these episodes about copyright protection and also how to avoid copyright infringement. So those two parts really go hand in hand. So make sure, again, that if you haven't listened to part one, go listen to it first and then come back here to part two so you can not only learn a ton of stuff from Rachel about copyrights, but also hear the battle of the accents. So I will see you on the other side of this interview. So Rachel, let me ask you this. If you have filed with the copyright office, like let's say that you filed on June the 1st and you're still kind of like in copyright office purgatory and you know that it's going to be eight months to a year, you know, hopefully get that registration. Can you initiate the expediting after you file it? Does that make sense? Sort of? Yes. Yes. That's a good question. You know, I have not been faced with that before. I'll be honest. The issue is that your copyright application, once it's filed, it actually is almost in limbo. Unlike the trademark office where it will be assigned to an examining attorney within three months, 
the copyright office doesn't do that. And so you might get a phone call if there's an issue with your application from what's called a copyright office specialist, and they will interact with the correspondent of record by email. And then once you get their email, you can phone them. But uh, I imagine that if the application's been filed, that there is the opportunity to get in touch with a particular representative to expedite it, even though it's not necessarily assigned to an examining attorney or a specialist right away. Because to have that application sit there and then not be able to bring a lawsuit and not be able to have the strength you need behind your demand letter to send it to the infringer would be detrimental to your business. So while I personally have not had that come up in my practice, I'd like to think that there's a mechanism, of course, once the $800 fee is paid to expedite. I bet you can. I bet you can. I'd be really surprised that if there wasn't some type of recourse there. Right. And and let's face it, why would the copyright office want to turn down a juicy $800? Right? <laughs> totally. I mean, not much going on there behind the scenes for the extra $800. So but I think, I think that that really, would be the most exciting place to work. What are you talking about? Oh my gosh. Yeah, right? That would be... It would be it would be interesting. Although it's funny because if the work is registered, it goes right through, and you don't hear from anybody at the copyright office. You just get your certificate of registration. So unless there's a problem with, you know, what you've claimed and certain claims of authorship that you've made in the application, and the examiner has a question or needs you to amend in some way, you know, it like I said, it's 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 in limbo. There's there's no way to go on to the trade to the copyright office's website to trace your application. Mm. They're only the, the the copyright office only maintains an online registry of registered works. That is the fundamental difference between the copyright office's website and the trademark, the US Patent and Trademark Office's website. And it's not uh, easy to search either. No, it's not. It's limited to very arcane search terms and methods. It's the, 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 the title of the work, the author of the work, and, and perhaps the registration number. It's very clunky. You, you can't even trace where you are in the process, and there is no particular person to address your questions or concerns to. I wonder if that will ever be improved. I mean, I feel like the USPTO has, is, you know, is definitely pr- taking proactive steps to improve certain processes. And, you know, we've talked about these, like, for example, the requirement to have a U.S. licensed attorney if you're a foreign-based applicant. I mean, that's obviously a pretty marked improvement. I'm just curious if, you know, kind of where the Copyright Office website and processes stand on improvement. I don't do a ton of copyright work, but you know, what little I've been looking at the copyright.gov website, it doesn't seem to be a lot different in terms of sort of their back end with respect to filing copyright. The front end seems to be almost like an overwhelming wealth of information. (laughs) So I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what type of improvements they plan, if any. From what I understand... And from what I've seen, the improvement came when they established an online filing system, Mm -hmm. which I want to say is at least five to eight years old now. But but before then, it was still paper filings. In fact, a lot of their other transactions must take place by paper, like recordations, change of name, change of ownership. 
and the like, which is very, very behind the times, if you will. The trademark office is much more aggressive and more concerned with user compatibility and effectiveness and productivity, I feel. The copyright office, like I said, what would be so helpful is when you file an application, what specimen the copyright applicant is submitting because you can't even see that right now when you search for a registration for the copyright. While it's helpful to know what the title is and the, the protections and the authorship that you're claiming rights to is, you don't know what the submission is. So all you see is brochure for product X or website pages. And that's whatever the title the owner wants to give it. But you don't know what really is behind the protection, the submission. And when you have a copyright, that's probably the most important thing is the, the article that you're protecting. You know, if it's yeah. about jewelry, diamond encrusted ring, and, and that's how it's described. Well, what is it? What kind of diamond encrusted ring? What are the attributes of the ring? So these are all the things that would be so incredibly helpful when, mm -hmm. when you are the receiving end of a demand letter. And you say, you know, there's a registration for the diamond encrusted ring. Well, how can I compare my ring to the infri uh, infringer's, I mean, the copyright owner's ring, if I don't even know what the darn thing looks like and what's protected by, by, by the copyright registration? So I, I don't know why they don't change that, but that would be really helpful. To have. <laughs> Massively uh, beneficial, right? <laughs> a, docket, a docket, if you will. A docket, if you will, the way that the USPTO has a docket for their trademark. Could you Violence. imagine, Rachel, the amount of paperwork that must be at the copyright office? I'm curious as to, I think it would be really interesting, and maybe this is kind of the geek in me, but I'm kind of, I think it'd be interesting to go to the copyright office and just see this wealth of, I mean, it's the Library of Congress, right? So, I mean, obviously there's going to be a lot of material could you physically search there if you wanted to? Do you know? You can. You can physically search there, of course, if you want to make copies or utilize the help of a copyright specialist. You are paying fees to that branch to utilize their services. But Susie, you might have struck upon something important in that, and that is maybe our law firm retreat needs to be down there. <laughs> and perhaps sit at a hearing at the TTAB or go visit the copyright office and see what it really means to physically search the specimens because I'll tell you you know while we don't live anywhere near to Washington DC you have to retain the help of a copyright specialist if you want to see copies of that what was filed with the copyright application unlike a trademark application yeah. perhaps maybe this could be where we need to go. <laughs> okay, here's what I'm thinking, Rachel. I'm thinking for our like our retreat, we need some beach action or something like that. Because I know I can't get you on the ski slopes yet, but I'm going to work on that. But I'm thinking that a trip to the Library of Congress would be really cool. Maybe when your youngsters get just a little bit older. And, you know, I think my niece and nephew the 13 and 12 year old ones, I think that that would be very educational for them. And I've been dying to get a trip to DC for them, period. Exactly. Now your little ones might need to get a little bit older before they would be able to get anything out of that really, I would think. But I think that that would be super interesting. Now, I don't know about like for our, you know, quote unquote, girls retreat. 
Yes, I know. <laughs> I, I might need a break away from the intellectual property for a few days. <laughs> we could make a pit stop at Ocean City, Maryland. Okay, Their we can do that. are fine. <laughs> <laughs> and then hit this on the way down. Okay, I can maybe do that. I can make, we Think can maybe work it. a little bit of it into it because I, I do think it's interesting and I've never been to the Library of Congress. I think it'd be kind of fascinating to see how it works internally and you know, maybe at some point all of this will be digitized and searchable. You know, I don't, I don't know. I think that it would be smart, but you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not the one working there. I don't know anything about there. I mean, there's obviously a lot of inner workings there that I'm just, I just don't understand. So it's hard for me to really make an intelligent <laughs> assessment about what the library of Congress should or should not do. I know that it's a, it's kind of a scary thing for people when they think about going down that route of should I file for copyright registration, right? Because they're thinking, well, I'm probably going to need an attorney and they should. I mean, I've been to the copyright office website. It's, it's clunky. And like you said, you can make a small, it seems easy. It seems like you're just filling out paperwork, but at the end of the day, small mistakes can mean big consequences. So people are doing this kind of cost benefit analysis. So they're thinking, how is this benefit? How will this, ultimate registration impact me? Are there, you know, obviously you do have recourse once you have that registration in hand, it's, you know, it's very strong if you need to send demand letters, but what about monetization of their copyright? Is there anything people can do, copyright owners can do to utilize that, maybe their product photography or just their photography in general to have sort of maybe a, another source of income? And if that is in in terms of licensing, how does, how does that look? What are some things that people should think about as copyright owners? Right. Well, one way to monetize would be to, to obviously license, you know, case in point, you have the iStock photo companies and there's a lot of them out of there, uh, out there. iStock photo happens to be one where, you know, a lot of, a lot of, companies will go to the database of photographs mm -hmm. and there are millions and all kinds of genres and depictions of all kinds of things to illustrate your point and to make your website look great. Those stock photo companies are doing that. They're monetizing a series of photographs and getting royalties in the thousands probably just so that you can illustrate your point with a web on a website or in your brochures. So licensing is good, but licensing can take very in numerous forms. You know, you could have exclusive licenses versus non-exclusive licenses. And each one of these licenses may be more pertinent to your business and others, uh, other businesses. You know, it, it could be a territorial thing where you want to enter into a license agreement with a particular manufacturer and perhaps that manufacturer is the biggest one in particular territory and so they stand to give you the most revenue and so you go with them and only them and and you make it exclusive license agreements are are very important to have because as we said before there may be a situation where you want to reserve certain rights to yourself to use a copyrighted work in, in some manner. So just putting it back again in the case of a, the, the author of a book, if you're the author of a book, perhaps you want to retain the right 
to publish that book in only paperback and audiobook fashion, but then you know that there's a publisher that can really do a great job in, in translating that book and publishing the book to a particular foreign market that you can't do. And so you grant them the right to do that. And there's terms that are outlined in each of these, out, these agreements. So that's just one way that you can monetize your copyright. Obviously, there are third parties that uh, owners that make a habit of almost trolling the internet and trolling others and sending them demand letters and saying, hey, you're using my copyrighted work and you owe me royalties and we can avoid an infringement lawsuit right now and save us all time and money. Just pay me this lump sum. Uh, it's come up with some of these songs. Same thing with iStock photos. There's organizations that have just a whole stock of music, whether it be music you're playing in your elevator for your business or in your conference rooms. And, and they do the same thing. Hey, you've been streaming music without a license. Pay me now the, the lump sum of XYZ or I'll see you in court. So Rachel, how do we know if we're on the receiving end of one of those, not saying I have ever been one, <laughs> right, right. but I actually, I know someone who has been, who's a, who owned, uh, um, owned a gym. It was a small gym, but if we are on the receiving end of one of those, how can we make sure that those claims are legitimate and that we aren't just the subject or we're not just the recipient of some type of troll, right? How do we know? Right. I think what, what you have to do is, again, being fully aware, if you have moved into a new space and you, you're leasing a new space for your gym, oftentimes as the business owner, you're wearing numerous hats. You're not necessarily the expert in the construction slash setup of the business. You're relying on others. And it could be that somebody says, you know what? I'm working for another business. They use this channel. It's a real motivator for the gym members. They love this type of music. <laughs> let's just go. get it streaming. Yeah, let's get it streaming because we're launching. We're, we have a grand opening Friday at 7 a.m. And guess what? It's Thursday at 6 p.m. So <laughs> let's just get anything streaming. Lo and behold, as you continue going about and business is booming, you forget all about the fact that perhaps that person might have had a single use. Maybe they just, let's yep. just do it for that one class, seven o'clock in the morning. And next thing you know, a year later, you get that letter that you've never obtained a license to stream. So, you know, it, it happens when you're a business owner wearing multiple hats, a particularly small business owner who's looking to cut costs and not have every assistant in the world do every little task for them, that these things can fall by the wayside. And again, it's very hard in those cases to prove a fair use defense or I didn't know. Copyright law doesn't care about you not knowing. Not knowing I didn't know is not a defense. And so in that case, you know, these companies and I've seen them, I've been on the receiving end of demand letters where some of these owners just don't want to be involved. They just say, okay, you know, it's, it's only a measly few grand. Uh, the, the infringement didn't happen that long. Let, let me just pay it and get out of it. Mm -hmm. And there are many business owners that do that. It, it, it would be a lot cheaper than going with, with a lawyer to defend and ultimately, but you never want to ignore something like that because thinking you did nothing wrong and, oh, I only used it for three weeks is not a defense to what could be a very valid claim. And, and, and to your point, monet, somebody monetizing his or her or its copyright. 
and it's, it's copyrighted music. I think that this has been a really interesting conversation, Rachel, because we've talked about two sides here. We've talked about being on the kind of the defense side, right? The, the receiving end of a demand letter, things that you should do, maybe some tips to protect yourself in the e-commerce space. So hopefully you don't end up with a demand letter that, you know, you're not infringing others' copyright. And then we've also talked about what to do as copyright owners or possible copyright owners. I have a couple of questions for you that I, I want to just kind of nail down as copyright owners. One is, I think that a lot of people might get licensing and assignments a little confused. Could you just briefly talk about the difference in what an assignment is and what a license is when it comes to copyright ownership and sort of the transfer of that ownership or licensing of that ownership? So in the first instance, the assignment. An assignment is an assignment of ownership. So you're giving, assigning your interest away to a third party, never to own or have rights again in into the copyrighted work. So an assignment will happen in connection with the sale of a business, let's say. An asset purchase agreement where a business is coming in to purchase all of the intangibles of that business, which would include the patents, trademark, and copyright for the sum that the business owner is paying. I the think that's an important thing to, look, to talk about too or to kind of touch on is the importance of those intangible rights that business owners have, right? Like they don't think about you know, maybe their copyright as being an asset that they can transfer in exchange for money <laughs> at right. some point, like if they want to wrap up their business. So I think that right. that's another reason e-commerce businesses need to really think about those intangible assets because I'm all about like, okay, what can I use that could be intangible and monetized? And the sell of those assets, including the copyright, is something that a lot of people overlook, I'm afraid. Yeah, and I think that nowadays, intellectual property is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds more so than it ever was. I mean, you hear constantly celebrities, the Kardashians, other people, other celebrities constantly going to the trademark office. The minute they develop a product line in mind, they go right to the trademark office and start <laughs> filing trademark applications to prevent others from taking their name, their trademark on a, on a potential new you know, product line or an association with a business venture. I say that because if I'm looking to buy a business, I'm looking to find out, do you have your intangibles, not just your office supplies and your, your overhead and all those things protected and ready to be assigned, but have you protected your intellectual property and your intangibles? Have you searched your trademarks and did you have a, a, an attorney write an opinion saying that you could go ahead and that the mark was clear for use and registration? Or did you just file it yourself and perhaps I'm taking on the liability of an infringement action happening down the road because you just decided to file an application for the mark? Same thing with copyright. You know, you can assign copyrights that have been protected with the copyright office and, and you've obtained registration. But you can also assign other written works to a business 
that are protectable still. Copyright protection is established the minute you reduce it to a tangible medium. So the minute you write that speech, the minute that you make that drawing, it copyright and ownership goes to the, to the author of that work. Mm. The copyright registration and obtaining that at the copyright office is the icing on the cake. Right. But nonetheless, a business owner would want to make sure and say, have you secured patents for your most important inventions? Have you obtained trademark and copyright protection for your most important works? The ones that are going to make all the money and, it, and the reasons why this purchaser has looked to purchase your company and is doing so in the first place. Yeah, I think a lot of people overlook that Rachel, that just getting these registrations in place, obviously there are benefits in terms of enforcement, but if there ever is a sale of the business, then having these assets in place and registered is so important. It's just, it's vital. Right. Also too, you know, obviously there's financial benefits with copyright registrations you know, you're, you're eligible for statutory damages and mm -hmm. attorney's fees and the like. You know, if you have registered the copyrighted work prior to the infringement or three within three months after publication of the work. So when it comes to protecting copyrights, they probably are more inexpensive to protect than any other intellectual property. The level of originality that's required to obtain protection before the copyright office is so it's a, it's a low threshold mm -hmm. it's much lower than it would be to obtain protection for let's say a patent or a trademark mm -hmm. and so the best course of action is to file as you go for those works that are most important to you if you're on a, a very strict budget i must also say that and I, and I posted this on LinkedIn on my LinkedIn page is that there is a new bill now known as the Copyright Alternative in Small Claims Enforcement Act of 2019 and that is moving towards the floor of the Senate to be voted on and what that's doing is it's going to be a tribunal to adjudicate in copyright infringement disputes involving claims of 30,000 or less in damage as opposed to having a whopping huge sum to have to go adjudicate in federal court. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's opening the floor for copyright owners who have quote small claim copyright issues to adjudicate those disputes. But since this is all very new, my guess is you're going to need a copyright registration to do that. When will the Senate vote on this? Do you have any idea? I believe it's coming up, it's being monitored, but it's, it's in the process. It's in the process. And it would be great if it could be by the end of the year, but it is definitely been on the forefront. It's definitely a great move. And whether or not you'll need a lawyer to defend, like as in regular small claims court where you don't, is yet to be determined. But you don't want to have to be that owner who has a small claim, who finally has addressability and then says, oh, gee, but now I have to pay $800 to the copyright office now to expedite, to pay that expediting, the fee to expedite when I could have done this maybe two years ago or a year ago or six months ago when this bill was still being reviewed. 
So this really underscores what we were talking about a minute ago that, you know, it really makes sense to file those reg- those applications. And I don't even know if application is the right word, but file with the Copyright Office sooner rather than later. What do you know what really, I guess, prompted this particular bill, Rachel? I think just that, that there's such widespread and rampant copyright infringement going on, particularly over the internet, Mm -hmm. particularly on the third party seller sites like Amazon and eBay, where a lot of these business owners are here, you know, just trying to make a living and to go ahead and to have to pay a large law firm, a large hourly rate to go to federal court and to try to assert those claims against an infringer who really doesn't have, at the end of the day, you can't get blood out of a stone, right? So so to go through all that expense only to find out that you get a judgment against the infringer and he can't pay you anything in damages anyway because he, he he's, you know, he, he has no money to his name. I think they're they're trying to make it accessible, accessible to a small business owner who has limited funds but has valid claims and wants right. to protect their product designs or whatever it is. It's their livelihood here, and it's giving them a means of re- recourse. Whereas till now, it's been somewhat untouchable unless you have deep pockets to assert claims in your demand letter with a big firm or go to court and go through that large expense. I haven't read this bill, and as long as the House hasn't slipped in anything too crazy, I can get fully behind this. So we'll see what the Senate does. It's going to be really interesting. Rachel, and it has bipartisan support, and right there exactly has been the right. challenge in our uh, political community thus far. So right there, having widespread bipartisan support is is probably three four fourths of the battle. Well, that's a pretty big deal because we just don't see that very much these days. So. No. But I think uh, pretty much everyone wants to support small business owners, right? Correct. And I think that that's really important because obviously that is the foundation of our country is entrepreneurialism and small businesses. And if I don't want to say like really leveling the playing field because I don't really like that so much, but being able to help these people actually enforce the rights that they own is, is just absolutely critical. If I'm a brand, if I'm a a copyright owner, Rachel, do you have any just final tips or suggestions in terms of monitoring my rights? Is there any good, I mean, obviously, let's say that I own product photography, a copyright in a product photography, I might come across my competitor on Amazon who has lifted my images. And I know that once I have my registration in place, Amazon's fairly responsive to removal of those infringing images. However, a lot of times our images, our copyrighted works are being infringed elsewhere. Are there any good platforms to help people, you know, kind of be on top of that? Like, you know, I don't want to encourage being a troll, obviously, but you do want to proactively enforce your rights. What about monitoring copyrights? Is that, that seems like something really, really challenging to me. Yeah, and I think... I think that it is because there are so many different services out there and options and you could spend a lot of money to have third parties trolling the internet. But that is one way that you can utilize third party monitoring services. Another way is registering your copyrights with the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Program. Oh, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, where CBP not only trademarks, but it applies to copyrights. They'll seize and detain, you know, imported goods that violate your copyright, copyrighted works. Of course, you'd have to have, a, a, again, going back to registration and getting your most important works registered. That's something that once you file with the CBP, that they're kind of like your watchdogs behind the scenes. You can get an email randomly one day from an officer saying, we just opened these containers at, you know, Port of Entry in Newark, New Jersey, and this is what we found. This, this shipper is not an authorized licensee as per the paperwork you submitted to us, and that's why we're detaining this container of this shipment. Please look at this and let us know if they're infringing goods. And so that's another thing that actually... Simple recordation, you have the CBP offices at the port doing their routine checks. So that's one other thing. I'd like to say that having worked in-house, that there's nothing wrong with having your team, a team that works under you, next to you, especially your social media team. Hey, why don't you check our competitors on a weekly basis? Again, another great project for a summer intern getting them to learn your business and learn what your competitors are doing. How do we stay on top of them better than them? They came out with this. Let's come out with that. But at the same time, cross-checking them, particularly if you're, you know, really toe to toe with a competitor in the field and, and the field is small and is only a few of you putting out the same product. Chances are there's only a few ways you can explain it and if, or, or describe it. And if, and if you've, you have the right literature, chances are maybe a competitor has now dipped into your website literature and has said, I'm going to kind of steal these you know, mm-hmm. catchphrases and let me see how close I can come. They'll never find me. So <laughs> having those, those, the, the personnel kind of work for you and embed it into maybe their, their weekly tasks. So at times I've been you know, given the task of, hey, let's just, just go through EB and see if they're selling you know, infringing product XYZ is really helpful. It's really helpful. And it's probably one of those things where you kind of need to pick your battles too. Right, of course. Especially when you work for like a, you know, a larger in-house brand. And before we get off of here, Rachel, I, I know that we're, our time is coming to an end, but I would love to know just a little bit about your, you know, just if you have any kind of experiences from the clothing company and entertainment brands that you worked with, you had mentioned the, um, the in-house work that you did because I think it's really interesting and I think that people would really kind of enjoy knowing which companies that you work for. So do you want to speak about that for just a minute or two and then I'll permit you to go on about your life today and not look at copyrights or discuss copyrights? Oh, sure. Sure. No, I had the pleasure and the great honor of working with some very talented professionals in the intellectual property groups at Tommy Hilfiger and at World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE. Oh, yeah. yeah, one was in New York City and one was in Stanford, Connecticut. There's lots of both industries are a hotbed for all types of wonderful and far out intellectual property issues, but mainly the pirating and particularly the knockoff of sneakers and other apparel overseas. And so yeah. it really was an invaluable experience to That's have. That's really cool. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you that with WWE and with Tommy, the customs recordations were huge. Sure. Were so, so helpful, particularly coming in from China, as you could imagine. 
Um, I will I will say that as it relates to China, one potential avenue could be to protect your works over there if it's really getting bad and you're finding that Amazon and eBay just can't do much about it. Um, and you can't do much about it here in the States with a, a distributor or a seller uh, or an infringer in China. So working with a trusted group of Chinese attorneys, intellectual property attorneys could be the way to go. And based upon the exchange rate, the Chinese attorney's costs at times is not so bad. Right, it's right. So, bad. so that's another option to think about. And that's, I mean, honestly, where a lot of people in this space in e-commerce right now that they're seeing so much of the infringement problems originating from is in China. So if that's something that is feasible for them, I think it's definitely something to consider. Now, I could ask you like another thousand questions probably about copyrights in China and registrations and, you know, possibly recreation there with their customs. But I am not going to take any more of your time today, Rachel. This has been a fascinating conversation. And I mean, about as fascinating as copyright protection can be, right? And I think that there, there's been so many really good takeaways from this. But my, my two biggest ones, attribution is not permission. And I think that's something that people really need to think about. And I didn't know is not a defense. <laughs> right. Yeah. And registration is a key sooner rather than later. Yes. And that's another, I think, big takeaway from here. Right. Rachel, I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today. I think that you've provided so much valuable content. And I was wondering if you would just let everyone know the best place they could find you if they're interested in learning more or seeking help in this space. Sure. My pleasure, Susie. And this has been a wonderful experience. And again, thank you for inviting me to talk to your audience. You can visit me at my website, santarlislaw.com. I also maintain a LinkedIn page and a Facebook page for Santarlis Law. So I am happy to, uh, if you have any questions, you can send me an email at rachel at santarlislaw.com. And I would be happy to entertain any additional questions your audience might have. That's awesome, Rachel. And what I'll do is I'll link your website, Facebook page, and LinkedIn in in the show notes, as well as the Copyright Office website so people can can go there and and realize how crazy it is. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds wonderful. (laughs) Rachel, thank you again so much. It's been a battle of the accents today. So hopefully people were able to kind of bounce back and forth from like the Northern accent to the Southern accent. It kind of makes it fun. So thank you just from the bottom of my heart for being on here with me today. It's just been, it's A real pleasure always talking with you. My pleasure, Susie, and have a wonderful afternoon. Talk to you soon, Rachel. You got it. Bye-bye. Well, that's all for this episode. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you loved this episode as much as I loved creating it with Rachel. I am so grateful for Rachel and her intelligence and her generosity and her willingness to participate in this podcast. And I'm also grateful for you being here and listening. 
So I will see you next time on the Trademarks Made Easy podcast. And remember, never stop learning. Thanks for listening to Trademarks Made Easy with Susie Hickson, the private label lawyer. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe anywhere you find podcasts or at theprivatelabellawyer.com. Remember, the information provided in the Trademarks Made Easy podcast should not be construed as legal advice. It's for informational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered a substitute for legal advice. Also, I'm not your attorney. You should engage with an attorney to discuss your specific legal issues. And finally, while I have taken precautions to ensure that the content of my podcast is current and accurate, errors can occur, and thankfully, like us, the laws are ever-evolving.